brought to you by Penguin. I so deeply wanted to understand that book, but I didn't have the background at that point, that I simply kept it with me. And I would—I swear to God, I would like stroke the cover now and then. That's how enthralled I was by the material that I knew that I would one day be able to understand. Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Penguin Podcast. As you will know, this is the place where we explore how our brilliant writers and artists get creative through a series of objects that have inspired them. I'm Nihal Arthanaik, and today we're back in my spare room. As usual, I'm balancing my mic on a cushion and virtually joined this time by the Professor of Physics and Mathematics at Columbia University. He is renowned for his groundbreaking discoveries in superstring theories. Uh, I'll explain that later. Or in fact, he will, not me. His first book, The Elegant Universe, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction. And outside of the scientific world, he is well known for bringing theoretical physics to a much wider audience. He's the co-founder of the World Science Festival and has even appeared as a guest on the Big Bang Theory, something my wife is very impressed by. Today he's here and he's currently residing at his log cabin in the Catskills, just outside New York. And uh, by all accounts, it's a bit windy and possibly a bit rainy as well. So please do forgive any glitches or wobbles in the sound. And he's here to talk about writing his new book, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Professor Brian Green. Brian, welcome to the Penguin Thank you very podcast. much. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, you've got some objects with you that have inspired your work, uh, which include a novel by... Camus and a collection of piano pieces written by your father, which we will get to in a moment. But first, I just slipped into the intro there about uh, your revolutionary discoveries on superstring theory and string cosmology. Now, um, I'm not going to try and blag it and make out I understand what any of that means. So could you give us an idiot's guide to superstring theory and string cosmology? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. You know, Albert Einstein is the one who articulated a dream that we physicists have taken up, which is to find what he called the unified theory. The goal has been to find a single mathematical framework that might describe everything in the physical universe, the big, the small, and everything in between. And string theory is the best attempt that we have. We've been developing it now for over 40 years. On paper, it's a very promising approach to talking about gravity and quantum mechanics and the laws of physics. As yet, we haven't tested the theory, so we don't know if it's correct, but it's something which has fired up the imagination of a couple generations of physicists. When you approach writing a book, a book such as Until the End of Time, how difficult is it to get the information across, but also with the understanding that you are not lecturing to undergrads or postgrads. It's people such as me who do not have that grounding. It's the art of trying to be an intermediary between a world in which the ideas are articulated in equations and mathematical symbols and a world, the everyday world, in which we communicate with ordinary English language. And so I enjoy the challenge. And in this particular book, 
it was perhaps easier than in my previous ones because Until the End of Time is not solely about translating from the realm of equations, say, to the realm of everyday life. It's the story of humanity as it fits into the unfolding of the entire universe. So it's a story that I think can grab the imagination without any need to talk about anything technical whatsoever. I mean, all of us have asked, how do we fit in to the largest cosmological unfolding of reality? And and that's the topic of the book. Before the church allowed... Um, scripture to be translated into languages where people could understand it. And it was the the holy men that really held on to the precious things and then let the common people know what was relevant to them. Is there an element of that in science? The fact of the matter is, as a community, we scientists are the most skeptical bunch. We are the ones that rip apart theories and we hit them with sledgehammers in order to see if they'll crack. We're not interested in building an edifice that is based on faith or trust. We are building an edifice that's based on observation and experiment. And and some of us do go out into the wider world and faithfully, if you don't mind the word, translate from the mathematics to common vernacular. And therefore, more and more people can come along on this journey, which is based on observation, experiment, and fact, not on faith and trust. And what does science do to wonder? Because wonder is a beautiful thing, to look at something and just be in awe of its beauty. But then if science deconstructs it, does it amplify the wonder or does it dilute it? Well, people have said both things. You know, there's this beautiful poem by Walt Whitman called The Learned Astronomer, where it tells of a student in an astronomy class who's listening to the lecturer talk about the stars and the galaxies, writing down the equations on the blackboard, and the student starts to feel sick, walks outside into the cold, dark night, and just looks up into the sky and feels the connection, the real connection to the stars and the galaxies. So that's one in which one imagines that the math could flatten that wonder. But Richard Feynman, I think, who's a great physicist, Nobel laureate, quantum pioneer, he was once asked a very similar question. And he said, look, when I look at a, a, at a flower like a rose, he says, I can experience it just like everybody else. I can experience the rich red color. I can experience the wonder of the aroma, but I can also go further. He said, I can look deep into the molecular workings of the rose to understand where the red comes from, where the aroma comes from. And he said, and I agree with this, that only in the language that you just used amplifies the wonder and the experience. It doesn't flatten it. So my own view is much closer to Feynman's. If you are willing to allow the mathematics and the insight to enrich, to give another layer of understanding to your experience of the world, it can be richly rewarding. Do you have a log cabin in the Catskills because you want to be able to look up at the sky? And I know the light pollution in Manhattan means you probably can't see many stars. Well, in yeah, New a, clear, York. a clear night sky in Manhattan, you see three stars. That's a beautiful <laughs> night. 
know, <laughs> and that may be a helicopter going over. I mean, yeah, it probably yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I do. In fact, I'm speaking to you right now from a, my little writer's cabin in in the Catskill Mountains. And I didn't get this place for that purpose early on. Got this place about 20 years ago, but um, it has provided that kind of experience for me, which has been a, a, a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I wrote until the end of time in the cabin that I'm sitting here right now. I would leave my family back in Manhattan, in New York City. I'd come up here with the dogs. My wife is very understanding. And I would spend weeks on end, you know, by myself, you know, and that's the kind of solitude that I need if I'm going to make real progress on things. And yeah, I mean, I'm, as you look out your window, as I am right now, and I see beautiful trees and, and the deep blue sky and not, you know, the brick and mortar of the building next door that we have in Manhattan. Yeah, there's something gratifying about that, something that is inspirational. You said that your wife is very understanding. We've spoken before, and I remember you mentioning that uh, there are often times when you're at the dinner table and there's a conundrum going around in your head. And people who are just a few feet from you have to say, uh, "Can you come back into the room?" Yeah, yeah, that 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 does happen on occasion. Much less so these days. As I get older, I think I'm more attuned to the room than I <laughs> than I than I was as a, as say a, a younger person. But I but if you don't mind, I could even go back one thing on that on on the sky full of stars thing that I, that, I, that is worth saying. I. I feel that one of the great tragedies of modern civilization is the decreasing number of people that on a regular basis or if at all see a full night sky full of stars. That experience connects us to the wider cosmos in the most visceral way. And I just feel it's so sad that there are so few people that that experience that because I know it's naive, but I just kind of feel like if the vast majority of people on planet Earth looked up every night and and saw that sky, I just think the world would be a better place. Um, one of the words that features heavily in your book is entropy. And one of the definitions of that is a lack of order or predictability and a gradual decline into disorder which fits in, unfortunately, into the times we're currently living in. What has been your reaction, your visceral reaction to a lockdown? A deep sense of sadness, a deep sense of tragedy, and and an empathy with those who are experiencing that in, in the fullest of ways. And a thankfulness for those that are on the front lines doing everything they can to protect us as a species. However, I will say at the same time, the ability to pull back and achieve a different perspective, a perspective that sees the species within the cosmological unfolding, that can sort of recognize the steps that go from the Big Bang to the formation of stars and planets to the emergence of life and to the existence of conscious beings – Seeing ourselves within that story gives me a parallel way of experiencing the tragedy of the moment. And it doesn't make me feel better about it per se, but it does give me a sense of solace. It gives me a sense of connection to something that transcends the tragedy of the moment. It doesn't lessen the tragedy, but allows for part of my mind and part of my emotional awareness to experience it in a somewhat different way. What world do you want to see on the other side of this? 
there was uh, some graffiti in Hong Kong, which someone pointed out, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it's saying, why should we return to normal? Normal was the problem in the first place. That's right. And and look, these kinds of tragedies can be a moment both for the individual and for society at large to rethink what really matters. And you see it playing out right now. There's this tension between the economic considerations and life on planet Earth. And it's so clearly the case that we need to place life so far above the economic considerations, so far above the things that have driven society and individuals for so long. And if it were at all possible for this tragedy to have a silver lining, and if that silver lining could be that we just value life, we value planet Earth, and we don't cause these other considerations to triumph over the things that really matter, that would be a better world. But, you know, as I see the lockdown easing and the reasons for it are largely economic in scope, my hope that that's what will come out at the end diminishes. Let's get to your first object. Now, why did you choose this bedraggled copy of Steven Weinberg's snappily titled Gravitation and Cosmology, Principles and Applications of the General Theory of Relativity? Would I be well, fair to say yeah. that it's probably not pristine? It's not pristine. In fact, the cover ripped off and it's held on by tape, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and I picked it because when I was in college, Stephen Hawking came to give a lecture and it was semi-technical, but because at that time he was still able to articulate some words, but he spoke very slowly, even an undergraduate like myself could follow a lot of what he was saying. And it was so thrilling that at the conclusion of the lecture, I left that lecture hall and I went right to the bookstore and I bought the book that he had mentioned on the general theory of relativity, this book by Steven Weinberg. And I so deeply wanted to understand that book, but I didn't have the background at that point, that I simply kept it with me. And I, would, I swear to God, I would like stroke the cover now and then. That's how, how, how enthralled I was by the material that I knew that I would one day be able to understand. And so I, I kept that book with me everywhere. It got beaten up. I went through every single page, and it's kind of a history of my own grappling with Einstein's greatest idea. Your father was a man of the arts, artistic, a voice coach and a composer. Do you see any difference between what you've chosen, what you fall in love with and what he fell in love with? Or do you see it all part of the same story? Well, I, I think it would be too quick, too facile to say that that they're the same. You know, there's there are deep resonances, though. I mean, what, what I try to do as a physicist is I try to find the patterns in the external world, and I try to find the equations that articulate those patterns. And, and what my dad did as a composer, what composers do, they, of course, they find patterns in the language of music, not the language of mathematics per se, but the language of music. And they try to find patterns not necessarily that are describing the external world, but patterns that speak to the inner world of experience and in some way move us. So I would say they're part of the the larger story because 
the external experience of the world and the inner reflection on that external experience need to blend together to give us our fullest understanding of what it means to be a human being. So mathematics is one way of illuminating part of that story and and music and the arts illuminates another distinct part of that story. Because you have argued most eloquently about the importance of why was it when we were at our most fragile, there was no electricity, we were prey to the large beasts of the night, that we still found time to create, to find artistic endeavours, to paint on cave walls. Yes, exactly. And it's a mystery at some level why we would spend time and energy on activities like that, like painting on cave walls that didn't put extra food on the table and it didn't sharpen extra spears and it didn't find additional shelter in case we needed it. What was the advantage, the survival advantage of that kind of an undertaking? And and some would suggest that there isn't any survival advantage, but others, and I count myself in that group, are convinced that the artistic impulse is in essence a playground of imagination, a playground of ingenuity that allowed us in the ancestral past to come up with more creative solutions to the kinds of challenges that we did face in the real world. And because of our artistic inclination, we came up with solutions that otherwise we wouldn't have, and that helped us to prevail. So I imagine, and there's no proof of this by any means, and there's controversy around these ideas, but I can well imagine that our artistic inclinations were quite directly related to our prevailing as a dominant species on planet Earth. And what of the importance of storytelling? We are this deeply social species that in addition to trying to get food and shelter, we need to negotiate as a group. We need to come together into these teams of individuals that can accomplish what the individual alone would be unable to accomplish. That's a very complex task. And through storytelling, we can prepare our minds, if you will, for the challenges that that kind of social world will throw at us, but we can prepare in a way that's completely safe. So again, storytelling, much like art, provides a playground in which we can practice for the challenges that we will face and need to triumph over if we're going to survive. And what about that moment that you faced as a child, which involved an uncooked pizza? Yeah. (laughs) And an oven, which is in the book. That little episode almost ended my young existence. Yeah, I came home from school one day and tried to heat up a pizza in our old-fashioned oven of the day. I didn't realize, or I'd forgotten at least, that you needed to light it with a match. So I turned on the gas, allowing the gas to accumulate inside the oven, and then only realized later, oh gosh, I need to light the oven, but now it was full with gas. So I lit it, threw the match in, and it exploded, you know, second, third degree burns, face, ears, nose, you know, it took months and months of of healing from that. But um, the reason I bring that up in the book is it speaks to this issue that you raised earlier, this issue of entropy and this issue of this drive toward disorder. Because the point that I make with this little story is there can be hurdles on the path to disorder and you need a catalyst to get over that hurdle. And my lighting that match in this particular case was that catalyst. 
But in many other situations, the catalyst is uh, more subtle. And we human beings, in some sense, are the catalyst for the universe achieving higher entropy states because what we do as human beings, we take in ordered ingredients from the environment, food. We process it through our bodies to get energy that allows us to maintain our order at the expense of throwing out, expelling, excreting disorder and waste to the environment. And that way we are a conduit. We human beings are nothing but a conduit through which the universe produces more entropy while allowing our physical form for a period of time to maintain its order. Wow. Okay. We're going to go on to your next object, which is a book by Albert Camus. Tell us about this. Yeah. So when I was a kid growing up, my dad had this shelf of books that were important to him. And one day, again, I was 12, 13 years old. I can't remember the exact age. I noticed a thin, slim little volume on the shelf and I pulled it down and it was The Myth of Sisyphus by Camus. And I I just opened it up and, you know, right there in the very first page is the thesis of the book, which is the only true philosophical question is that of suicide. That's what it says. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks because it was like, of course, that's the only real question in the world. The, the only real question that we face is, is life worth living? Is it worth continuing the pursuit of this life that we are given, especially as he goes on to articulate in a universe that seems not to care about us, in a universe that doesn't have us at its core, in a universe that is fundamentally, in some sense, absurd. And that set me on a journey which uh, has, I think, informed a lot of what I've done, both as a physicist and as a writer. As a scientist, as a physicist, then, is meaning something actually separate from the mathematical equations? Because in this world that Camus describes, which is inherently devoid of meaning, so consequently absurd, Yes. Is it something like love that mm-hmm. is meaning? I think that can be part of it. The way I would frame it is, you know, we are these collections of particles governed by physical law. And the physical law is described in the language of mathematics. And I assure you, if you look in those equations, you will not see even a glimmer of meaning or purpose in the mathematical symbols. And the reason for that is we collections of those particles make up meaning. We manufacture meaning. How wonderful that collections of particles can come together and think about issues of meaning and purpose and value and moreover come up with things like love or camaraderie or family or religious pursuits or any other of the things that we use to give meaning to our lives. So is it separate from the mathematics? It is in the sense that meaning is not written into the equations, but we, collections of particles that are fully governed by those mathematical equations, we are the ones that make up meaning. So meaning, in a sense, emerges from the mathematics acting itself out on the particles when the particles are in the shape of a human being. Is it possible to extricate scientific discovery from meaning? Because ultimately, you're trying to find meaning. 
Well, yes, I think you can separate them. And I say that only because I know many scientists who do separate them. They view the scientific research as trying to solve very specific problems to give very specific insight into qualities of the external world from how it is that stars shine to why it is that materials have particular properties that they do or to try to manufacture this or that drug to deal with this or that challenge that we human beings may face. And those are very specific scientific undertakings that need not directly be tied into any notion of value or meaning. However, at the same time, we need to recognize that the human story, the human experience, which relies upon an understanding of the physical world, we are physical beings in a physical world governed by the same equations, but we human beings like to tell other stories, stories that go beyond trying to understand hydrogen or helium or how stars shine. We tell stories that try to give us a sense of why we're here. When you can blend the scientific understanding all the way down from atoms and molecules up to people and planets and stars, and when you can meld that with your understanding of what gives your life meaning and purpose, to me, it's a richer narrative. It's a richer story. Let's move on to your next object, which is watercolors, piano pieces by your mm. father. Tell us why these are so important to you. Yeah, you know, my dad was a composer, as, as you mentioned, in addition to being a, a vocal coach. But com composition, I think, is really where he would have described what he was and what he did and why he was here on planet Earth. But at the same time, he was not one of those composers that became widely known. Much of his music is locked up in a file cabinet where my mom still lives in Manhattan. And I think I'm probably the last person on the planet that ever listens to any of his music. So to me, his music is a very Listening to his music is a deeply personal experience. And, and toward the, the end of his life, he wrote a selection of piano pieces for me. On occasion, when I either listen to recordings of them or I try to play them myself, I feel a connection to him that I can't reproduce in any other way. I mean, he's been dead now since 1987. My God, that's a long time for me. It's like 30, 33 years ago, well more than half my life. And yet when I listen and play these pieces, I feel like I'm with him. I feel like I'm hearing his own thought process. I feel like I'm feeling his creativity. And so they're vital to me. What are the questions you wish you'd asked him or do you think that you had a chance to ask him? all the questions you wanted to? Well, I, I certainly remember toward the end of his life, he was struggling with his own mortality because he had medical issues that he felt like his days were really numbered. And I couldn't really handle it at the time. I, I found it so upsetting. I loved him so dearly that I, I, I couldn't have a conversation of that sort. And I was too young and I didn't have the maturity to handle it. And I, I wish that I could have that conversation with him now because, you know, facing the end with people that you love and allowing you to really feel the impact that you've had and to recognize that you live on in, in those that you leave behind is something that can be, can be deeply comforting. And I, I feel like I didn't give him that comfort and I, I wish that I had and I wish that I could do that over again. Was the meaning for him in creating the music 
or was there a meaning in having it recognised? I mean, you've made the point that yeah. perhaps it wasn't as widely recognised as it should have been. In, in a way, I feel my dad is far more creative than I am, and yet I feel like I've gotten much more recognition than he did. And there is a definite sense that that's wrong. In the grand scheme of things, it should have been reversed. Did any of that act as a driver for you? Did any of that fuel your own ambition, if that's the right word, because you were aware of how that had affected your father? It, it must have been there at, at, at some level. I also recognize that I, 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 I like to feel I was driven by the big ideas. I mean, for a long, long time, I've said to myself, I'm never going to be an Albert Einstein very few people are an Albert Einstein. That's the kind of mind that comes along once a century, if at best. And therefore, if you're going to be frustrated by not reaching the level of an Albert Einstein, you shouldn't be working in physics. And I tell that to my students. And as an individual physicist, I feel comfortable with the contributions that I've made. I still hope I've got a few big contributions on the horizon. That would be that would be great. But in the end, I'm satisfied to be one of the army of individuals that have tried to push the boundary of understanding. At the same time, I can't help but think that what makes it easier in that regard is you know, my books have been widely read. You know, I've done television series that have been widely watched, at least in America. And and that kind of balances it out, that sense of reaching the wider public, even if you're not at the level, say, of an Albert Einstein. If I didn't have that, maybe I would be in the same frame of mind as, as my dad vis-a-vis his own composition, his own music. Can we talk now about something that is at your office at Columbia. Let's talk about this by Fabian Oefner. Yeah. Now, Fabian's a, a, a fantastic, a really wonderful artist. And some years ago, he created a series of works called Black Hole. And what they are is he, I don't know exactly how he created them, but he was able to take paint and I guess he put it on some spinning saucer-like shape and allowed the paint to fly out in all directions and land, I guess, on a canvas, which would have a central black region, looks like a black hole, and this incredible explosion of color in the environment of the black hole. And I was fortunate he gave me one of these prints, and it just so happened that it fit precisely in my office. It was almost like it was custom made. And to me, it's just this beautiful blending of art and science. It's this beautiful blending of the human impressionistic response to the notion of a black hole set against the image of a black hole as articulated by the mathematics of Einstein's theory. So I love having this this 11-foot black hole behind me as I work, and I turn back frequently and look at it, and I feel a sense of inspiration from the blending of the human and the cosmic. Let's dip into your book for a moment, because there's a point in the first chapter where you're discussing your reflections on the future Let's hear that bit from the audiobook now. Over time, my emotional engagement with these ideas has refined. Now, more often than not, contemplating the far future leaves me with a feeling of calm and connection, as if my own identity hardly matters because 
it has been subsumed by what I can only describe as a feeling of gratitude for the gift of experience. Since, more than likely, you don't know me personally, let me put this in context. I'm open-minded with a sensibility that demands rigor. I come from a world in which you make your case with equations and replicable data, a world in which validity is determined by unambiguous calculations that yield predictions matching experiments digit by digit, sometimes as far as a dozen places beyond the decimal point. So the first time I had one of these moments of calm connection, I happened to be at a Starbucks in New York City. I was deeply suspicious. Perhaps my Earl Grey was tainted with some bad soy milk, or perhaps I was losing my mind. On reflection, neither was the case. We are the product of a long lineage that has soothed its existential discomfort by envisioning that we leave a mark. And the more lasting the mark, the more indelible its imprint, the more a life seems to be a life that mattered. In the words of philosopher Robert Nozick, but they could just as easily have come from George Bailey, death wipes you out. To be wiped out completely, traces and all, goes a long way toward destroying the meaning of one's life. That was Until the End of Time, written and read by my guest, Brian Green. It is available to buy and download now, and there's a link in the programme notes of this episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Primarily, Brian, when you sat down at the beginning of this process of writing Until the End of Time, what ultimately did you want to achieve from it? What was the mission statement going around in your head? I would say there were two things that I wanted to achieve. At a very personal level, I wanted to try to really put on paper ideas that really mattered to me, mattered to me beyond the kinds of things that I had discussed in previous books that were focused just on the science String theory, unification, cosmology, space and time, these are beautiful, wonderful ideas that we've gained so much insight into. But what really gives those ideas their heft is the way they affect us. And I wanted this book to tell that grandest story from the beginning to the end with our footprint playing a vital part as that story unfolded, which takes me to really what the second, if you will, mission statement was. I wanted to give a place where people who have some interest in science, I wanted to give them a place to go to explore that, a place where religion has a particular place, where art and creative expression have a home, a place where, as we were talking about, storytelling and myth-making and language have a natural home within a larger narrative arc stretching from the Big Bang to the end of time. And I wanted to give people a place for that kind of journey, and, and that's really what the book is about. Brian, it's been great to hang out with you. It really has. Can I just ask you, is, is it raining in the Catskills at the moment? It's it's incredibly windy. I don't know if you can actually hear the wind whisking by my windows <laughs> right now, but uh, it's kind of dramatic out my window right now. Right. Well, stay <laughs> safe if you decide to go for a walk uh, later on. I will on. do that. Thank yeah. you. And what a, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. A new audio series of Penguin Classics titles is now available. Crime and Punishment, read by Don Warrington. That, Sonia, was when I realized that power is given only to the man 
who dares to stoop and grab one thing, just one, to dare. Les Misérables, read by Adil Actor. Never fear robbers or murderers. Those are dangers that come from without. Small dangers. Let us fear ourselves. Get them on Apple Books, Audible, and all audiobook retailers. Happy listening.